Today's scripture reading is from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethany and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, as we continue our journey through the book of Mark, we finally come to the beginning of the end of our journey, the beginning of the end of our pilgrimage that we have been on this road with Jesus. We finally arrive at the destination to which Jesus has set his face for these many chapters, really from chapter 7 and 8, the Mark took a turn, and we saw that turn take place as Jesus begins to um, cease, really, in large part from his public ministry, pull his disciples aside and begin to reveal precious things to them about the nature of his coming, the nature of the Son of Man, who is the Christ. And he corrects many of their misconceptions as he's revealing this purpose, he also sets out on a road, sets out on a pilgrimage, and he makes his way to Jerusalem. We've been on this road since the Son of Man first revealed that he must suffer many things, recall, that he would be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And now we've arrived in the city of his suffering, where all those things would take place. Jesus has been telling his disciples privately these things. Three times he was clear and plain with them about these most basic gospel realities. Now they weren't prepared yet to receive this as good news. We have the fullness of the scriptures and the unpacking of what Jesus did and we saw him rise as testified by the apostles. And so we know that it's good news, but it is a frightening, amazing thing, an astonishing thing, the crowds uh, and the disciples say as they make their way to Jerusalem, knowing that there is some confrontation about to happen there. Mark presents Jesus in our passage this morning as the Lord and the master, he's entering the city that is his by birthright and kingship. And the son of David has come to establish the kingdom and the rule of his kingdom. All these things are coming to a head. And his coming is an answer to the cries of the people. Not just this particular pilgrimage, but all of the centuries of the journeys to Jerusalem. When they've been crying, Hosanna, save we pray. Did they know that they were crying for this moment? 
this great moment, the culmination of centuries of expectation. But what do we see? We see humility of the coming of the Christ. We see humility, but we also see authority, the authority of his salvation. And then he begins to reveal the glory of the one and only in a way that should sit us down and have us pause and consider the nature of the glory of our Savior. So let's look at chapter 11 this morning as we see humility, we see authority, we see glory, all of these things that work in the ministry of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would work by your word, that you would show us nothing less than what is there, that we, your, word, your spirit would be at work among us, that we would not only see, that we would not only hear, but we would understand and we would believe that you would impact moments and thoughts and times and actions, unbelief in everyone who's gathered this morning, or that you would work by your spirit and by your word to change your people. This is our prayer. Save, we pray. And keep us, Lord, by your word this morning. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. We know to cry out, Jesus. Amen. This morning, we begin by just a little bit of orientation. We have a setting right at the beginning of our passage. I hope you have your scriptures open. We're going to walk our way through it this morning, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 11. Justin told me he would refrain from using the dad joke, and so instead, I will throw him under the bus and say that we are now in chapter 111 through 11 this morning. Uh, So here we are at the beginning of chapter 11. Thank you, Justin. Uh, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, here they are in Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And we're going to pause on that in just a few moments together. But Jesus sends his two disciples ahead of him. So this is the setting, Bethpage, Bethany, the Mount of Olives. We begin with Jesus drawing near to to Jerusalem, but he doesn't yet enter the city. Instead, he's in these locations that are sort of triangulated for us. We see three locations mentioned, the phrase Bethpage and Bethany. That basically means Bethpage near Bethany, that region that he's staying in. And that region becomes for Jesus a new home base of sorts. We'll see in the coming chapters that Jesus has made a base of ministry in Jerusalem in the nearby village of Bethany. It's essentially a small suburb just outside the walls of the city. And Jesus makes his his base of ministry over the course of time there. And that course of time isn't very clear to us in the Gospel of Mark. What we have is action after action, teaching after teaching, moment after moment, action-packed, just as we've come to expect in Mark over the course of the next chapters. But if we look at the other gospel accounts, we see, especially in John, that this is probably four months of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. The, The time frame from one festival all the way through the festival of the atonement. And so we have Jesus here ministering in this way during the course of four months with this base of ministry out there in Bethany, if you look closely at the events of Mark, you'll see that he packs an extraordinary number of events in this tight little frame, as he's really been doing from the beginning, right? And how many times have he seen the word immediately? Jesus is always moving, always on the road 
in the book of Mark. Action-packed. The action now comes to Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem, Bethpage and Bethany, and then we're told the Mount of Olives. Now, that's an interesting one. It's actually one of those phrases where it's just unnecessary. It's sort of thrown in there. We don't need to know that. Is there anything that Mark is telling us by throwing in there this phrase, Mount of Olives? The significance of the location is actually found in the fact that Jesus' first arrival is to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is significant in the history of Israel, particularly in the history of Jerusalem and the temple. I want to draw your attention to at least two passages of Scripture. The first is Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 23. In Ezekiel eleven twenty-three, 23, it says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of of the city. Let me tell you, first of all, that's not good news. It's not good news that the glory of the Lord is on the move, because the glory of the Lord had come to settle in, in the temple, right there in the center, in the midst of the people, and the people then would would gather around him, just like the tabernacle at the center of the encampment, the temple at the center of the city, with the people gathered around with the glory of the Lord in their midst. That was the great hope of the people, but on that day, Ezekiel is announcing the prophecy of the Lord's judgment upon the people by his lifting of his glory and going outside of the city to the mountain that is on the east side of the city, none other than the Mount of Olives. This is a portrayal of judgment upon the city as the glory of the God that resides in the temple, takes up residence elsewhere, departs not only from the city, not only from the temple, but from the midst of the people. I think it's worthy at least of note that Jesus, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, now comes to this mountain. Now, what exactly that means, what deep significance there is there, I'm not sure, but it's at least worthy of note that it's here that the glory of the Lord once again takes up residence on this mount from which he will again descend in our own passage to the temple. Now, in the fall, this coming fall, we're going to begin a new sermon series on the minor prophets. We're going to work our way through those 12 prophets that are profound in their impact, even though we call them the minor prophets, just they're, they're short, shorter than Jeremiah and Isaiah. But when we come to Zechariah, we'll note many of the allusions to the life of Jesus right there in Zechariah. The work of Jesus on this particular day is not a complete fulfillment that we find in Zechariah verse 14, chapter 14, verse 4, that is the coming of the day of the Lord. The coming of Jesus to Jerusalem on this particular day that we read about in Mark 11 is not a complete fulfillment of this, but it is a reminder that the great and final day of the Lord, it is coming. And here's how it says it in Zechariah 14, verse 4. On that day... His feet, the feet of the Lord, coming in judgment on the coming day of the Lord, will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And then following after that in the same verse is is words of judgment and words of calamity coming down in the day of the Lord. The Lord's doing something here. The Spirit is doing something by inspiring Mark to record for us that Jesus took up his place right there in Bethpage in Bethany, the Mount of Olives. Let me first offer this application for us this morning. The Lord has given us his word, right? We have it. 
Like we literally have our own copies. We have multiple copies. We have little paperback copies that we just sort of sit on the ends of the seats. And we have, I don't, in my house, we have piles of copies in various places. He's revealed himself in a book filled with history. It's filled with poetry. It's filled with prophecy. It's filled with words that I can't even pronounce, right? It's quite a book. So many words. I think one of the first applications for us is, I know it was for me working my way through this passage with all of its allusions to the word that has gone before the recording of this event, is let us not cease to give full attention to the full counsel of the word. It's a big book. It's going to take a lot of attention to give attention to the full counsel of the word. I know along the way I've said that my personal vision statement, sort of a, a way that I'm trying to be in this world, is that I would preach, teach, and come alongside of others with the full counsel of the Word of God. Now there's a task for you, so that means come alongside with this whole thing. I think that this morning there is a reminder to us to, to seek, to study, and to open up the pages of Scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, the pages that inform us. And give us a lot of the breadth and depth that stands underneath of so much of what we see and we read. That while at times it's difficult for us to understand, because we're we're so far removed from the history, from much of the language, the landscape, and the culture, at the same time, those very things that we find so difficult to engage with actually serve to open up and make more full the account of the Gospels. Now here's what's true. The gospel is plain for us. Jesus has spoken it plainly. We see this. Mark actually records for us that when Jesus describes his suffering and his death and his resurrection, it says, he said this plainly for all to hear and believe that a child can come and understand these things but the depth of understanding that is available for us, the appreciation that is available in these scriptures is a long and beautiful road. It's not plain. It's not easy to understand the depth of the glory of God and his gospel. It is a long and beautiful road. And so the call, I think, first of all for us is to persevere in our study as we gather and we scatter. That if we find ourselves on a Sunday morning, and and kids, I know this is you, I know it's me, right? When you find yourself in a place where there's words that you don't understand, or you're not sure that you caught that reference, write it down and ask a question. It is a worthy pursuit to press into the depth of the glory of our God and his gospel, and pray that the Spirit would be at work to remind us of the fullness of what we can find about our God, and what it is to follow after him as we give attention to these things. So here we are at this crucial moment of redemption history. Here's Jesus, Bethany, Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. What's he going to do? What great work has the Son of Man, God made flesh, prepared in the midst of the pilgrims on that day? Well, let's look as the Lord prepares the pilgrimage, and what we'll see is, first of all, highlighted the humility of the Christ. Jesus does not arrive here in the outskirts of the city alone, 
But he's rather gathered quite a crowd around him. Quite a crowd is making their way to Jerusalem. And on the way, they bump into Jesus. They bump into his teaching. And they bump into his work. And they begin to follow after him. And they're watching the confrontation between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees already unfolding. And they're amazed and afraid. And they become fellow pilgrims, Jesus and these others who are journeying to Jerusalem. It's also clear along the way that they gather with amazement, fear at what's going to take place in Jerusalem. And what's most important on this particular year's pilgrimage is Jesus is at the center of the whole thing. Those who are walking with him know that Jesus is a very big deal walking into Jerusalem on this particular day. There's something about to happen on this road with Jesus and the leaders in Jerusalem and the Romans and the people. Something's about to happen. The people, they're praying, right? They're praying for a new order, some sort of revolution, some sort of establishment of a kingdom of prosperity and peace like the great king of old, King David, who brought shalom to the people, right? They're longing for a return to peace. As we listen in on Jesus as he makes preparation while he moves further into public ministry again here in Jerusalem, we see that he does so with a humility that's consistent with what he's been telling us all along the way. He's had a clear and distinct message of humility as the way of the kingdom, the whole of the journey. And here he is. He arrives and we could see, okay, you've been talking about humility on the journey. What are you like when you arrive? Jesus has just told us at the end of chapter 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is this true? Let's pay attention to the way of Jesus. And the first thing that we see is a cult. Look at verse 2. They said, and Jesus said to these two disciples that he brought to him, go into the village in front of you. What kind of preparations is he going to make? Immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it. And if anyone says to you, what are you doing? The Lord has need of it and he'll send it back immediately. It was the right of a king and commander to to commandeer a, a mount from his people to ride with authority and glory. But Jesus in fulfillment of the scriptures doesn't choose a great war horse. He doesn't choose to be seated on a chariot. But Jesus, in fulfillment of the scriptures, is right to call for a mount, sit like a king, but he reinforces the nature of his kingdom by choosing a donkey, a donkey on whom no one has ridden because he is the king. But he chooses a donkey, a beast of burden, and his, he, he displays before his people what he's been teaching. This didn't come out of nowhere. This isn't just a fulfillment of some scripture that makes sure he did it the right way. But scriptures have been written for Jesus to walk in, have been prophesied beforehand, that he would demonstrate the way that he's been holding out before his disciples and the crowds. A way of humility. Matthew and John make this connection explicit. Mark doesn't record it, but we know Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Again, another allusion to Zechariah. You guys getting excited for the fall? You're going to go home and read Zechariah and say, teach me, let's do this? Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl 
of a donkey. And not only do we see Jesus with his humility, demonstrating what it is to be a servant and a slave of everyone, we also see that he's still the king. That he is the king of a a beautiful kingdom of humility and servants, but he's still the king. And as king, he has authority. You see, Jesus has a need, a particular need. He needs a donkey. He doesn't have one. He doesn't have anything. He doesn't even have a pillow, a place to lay his head, he says. And here he needs a donkey. And so in verse 3, he sends his disciples ahead of him. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and did just as he said for the first time in the entire account of the Gospels, right? Mark presents Jesus with a knowledge of the village that conveys a sort of divine authority and insight. He sends the disciples into the city with all the authority of a military general to commandeer this cult. If anyone says, what are you doing taking this animal out of the street? I mean, that's going to draw attention when these people from Galilee come in here and start untying things. What do you say? The Lord needs it. Say it with authority. Jesus knows that men not from the reason are going to draw attention, but he also knows his authority. That donkey belongs to him. And it's been prepared for him. And it hasn't been written, ridden because it's his to take on this day. And so he has authority and perhaps even a reputation in the region coming as news would go ahead of him and he enters into the region And so he secures the animal for himself, and yet he gives assurance that the animal will be returned. I think that's interesting, right? He doesn't just say, the Lord has need of it, so we're going to take it. He says, but don't, 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 don't worry. It'll be returned back to you. We'll bring it right back here when he's done. There's a humility that's taking place even as he's exercising authority to commandeer the king's mount. Look at verses 4 and 5. They went away, found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. Some standing there said to him, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them that Jesus had said, and they let him go. They brought the colt to Jesus. And then we see Jesus making preparation to enter into Jerusalem. When the disciples go, they do just as Jesus had instructed. It's worthy of noting that the disciples submit themselves to the command of Jesus. And when they do, they find things just as Jesus had said. It's it's definitely not the main point of the passage, but it's definitely also worthy of our noting. Isn't that true? That when we find ourselves in the rare moment of actually doing as Jesus has said, we find things to be just as he said they would be. The authority of Jesus is good for those who follow him. We have the humility of Jesus. We have the authority of Jesus. You know, one of the greatest gifts of the book of Mark that he has given to me is an up-close, consistent look at the life of Jesus. Haven't you felt like just drawn in, like we are are given an action-packed, first-person look at the movement of of Jesus in the flesh. We get to see his thoughts. We get to see the details of his actions. We get to see him touching the weak and the vulnerable. We see him suffer deep 
personal rejection from the people of his own town. We get to see him suffer the confusion of his own family that just want him to come home. They're not sure what's going on. We get an up-close and personal look at Jesus as he wrestles with the faithlessness of his disciples. We get to see him take hold of his divine sacrificial purpose, honoring the purpose of the Father and sending the Son as a ransom for a people that the Father had set aside for him. We see Jesus up close and personal. And here we see what we've been seeing. We see confirmed in this, in this account as sort of a microcosm of the humility of Jesus that we've seen throughout the whole of the book of Mark. He has set himself on a way to Jerusalem to, as an act of service for those who would follow after him. And when he arrives, he continues in this humble nature to lead and direct them and to exercise his authority with humility and grace that's fitting for the sacrifice that he's about to make in the coming chapters. We have this great confluence, this coming together of what Jonathan Edwards called the diverse excellencies of Jesus. This diverse excellencies of the humility and the authority of the lion-like lamb who's on the throne. So let's turn now to the meat of our passage sitting here for us as Jesus finishes his pilgrimage. Look at verse 7 with me. He brought the colt. He brought him to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. Remember, it hadn't been written. It's not saddled up and ready to ride. So they throw the cloaks over it. Jesus sits on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. I wonder, I just can't help but think of John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord, preparing the road that he would go on as they prepare the way as he enters Jerusalem. They spread their cloaks and the leafy branches. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Here we see the glory of Jesus. The pilgrims are coming. Let's not forget that this wasn't just Jesus and then a crowd around him. This was a group of pilgrims who were making their way to Jerusalem for the festival. Again, we recognize that this isn't just Jesus entering a city. It's the culmination of an entire crowd's journey. But along the way, Jesus has become the center of the pilgrim's journey. He's literally at the center of the crowd with those who are before him spreading their cloaks before him and laying down leafy branches and those behind him and before shouting Hosanna and other words of the songs of the people on pilgrimage. This past summer, we studied the, journey, the songs of the journey we call the series, the Psalms of Ascent. Well, those are the songs that the people on their way to Jerusalem for the festivals would sing. And what is the last psalm? It's Psalm 118. It's a beautiful psalm. Go and spend time with it this week. Let it fill up and give words to your worship this week. And what's contained in the song? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Listen to verses 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, or Hosanna, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Bring us into your presence, they're crying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. That's where they're going. They're going to the house of the Lord because this is the place where God has manifest his glory. And their cry is Hosanna. 
save, we pray. Save. The crowd doesn't even fully understand how right and good their prayer is. Do they know how closely approaches their salvation? Do they even know? And I find this to be true about the scriptures. Not only is there a call to study to understand the scriptures, but the word gives us the words of our worship. It's one of the most precious, ongoing realizations that I have with the word. That word, the word gives us the words of our worship. We don't have to be creative, and we don't have to wonder. We have the words. And so we can use them. You see, on this day, nobody really knew. They had impressions. They had study of the prophecies. And they knew of Messiah. But not even Peter, the closest to Jesus, really understood that the Messiah was going to give his life as a ransom. Instead, he rebuked him for it. And yet, what did they say? What were their words? Hosanna! Did any of them actually cry out, save us through your sacrificial death and your glorious resurrection, we pray? But they did say, save us, we pray. Friends, there is a humility that that we're called to before the word. Go ahead and use the words. Open up the Psalms and let them fill up your worship. You may not have understanding, but they're true before the Lord. And you'll find yourself crying out, save us, we pray, before you even understand the depth of the glory of his salvation. Let us fill up the words of our worship with the words of the word. The coming kingdom of our David, they say. There's a right longing in the words of the pilgrims for an anointed one to take the throne of David. There's a right longing there. But they don't yet fully understand that Jesus himself is that anointed one. Jesus is the Messiah. This is just the cry of a longing of a group of pilgrims, and Jesus is really important in their midst, but he will establish a kingdom not through revolution, not through a throne, but through a cross and through a tomb. They don't yet understand, but they do cry, Hosanna. The glory of the Lord isn't, is, is not riding a donkey on the streets of Jerusalem surrounded by cheering crowds. The crowds of the, pilg- are the, of the pilgrimage, are, they're about to disappear And the glory of the Lord is right there in their midst, in Jerusalem. The crowd is going to disappear and the pilgrimage will be replaced by the crowds of Jerusalem. And the crowds of Jerusalem, as they're fomented by all of the politics that are at play in the city, their cry will be far different than Hosanna. Their cry, of course, will become crucify him. The crowds of Jerusalem will not throw their robes down before him. They're going to strip Jesus of his clothes, and they're going to cry out mocking insults. Instead of pilgrims blessing the coming of the kingdom of David, Roman occupiers are going to mock him. They're going to put up a sign above his execution that says, this is the king of the Jews. Friends, we need salvation. We need Jesus to do his work in the midst of our ignorance, in the midst of our mockery, that with humility and authority, the glory of Jesus will accomplish his work. He's going to enter Jerusalem, and he is going to go to the temple. Now, this is interesting. Look at verse 11 with me. Shortest little 
phrase in our passage. He entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Well, there you have it. Jesus finally made it to the temple. Here he is, right? Here's Jesus at the end of his pilgrimage. He's been speaking about this whole time. He looks around and goes home. How unimpressive. How, how anticlimactic this is. But you see, Jesus isn't just going to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to the temple. We know this. It's the, the purpose of his coming. Jesus' interaction with the temple is key to the coming chapters. But nothing happens. He's not recognized in the temple. No one says, look, the glory of the Lord in the midst of the temple. On this day, he's not seen as the object and fulfillment of the worship of all the people through all all the centuries. No one cried out, we see him with our eyes. Hosanna. They didn't cry that. You see, Jesus isn't confessed again as the Messiah until the cross. Mark chapter 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. In the past, the people had experienced the glory of God leaving the temple as a sort of act of judgment. They'd seen this prophesied and they'd seen this take place. And we'd seen the temple reestablished and the worship of God continue there, but here we have another image, that in Christ, the glory of God has freely roamed the Galilean countryside. I mean, have you realized that's what we've been reading about? That's why it's been so amazing that we've been brought so close. We have gotten to walk through the word with Jesus, the glory of God in the Galilean countryside. And now, The glory of God has come again to the Mount of Olives, and he descends and makes his way to the temple. But the glory of God has come not to judge, but to save. When we see this interaction of Jesus in the temple, many times in the coming chapters, we'll reflect on these things. It becomes increasingly clear that the usefulness of the temple is receding. He comes and he goes. And it's receding just when the work of Christ is reaching its climax. There is an interchange that is taking place between Jesus, the glory of God, and the temple, the residence of the glory of God. I would offer this to you. Jesus does not replace the temple. Jesus doesn't replace the temple any more than an object replaces its shadow. But when we finally see the object instead of the shadow, why do we look at the shadow anymore? Behold, the real has come. And our eyes move from the shadow and the silhouette, and we see the three-dimensional shape and the glory of God in our midst. The temple itself was never the thing. It was always the shadow that imaged the mystery of the shape of the reality of Jesus, and we have been given 11 chapters so far being brought up close and personal with the glory of God. Alistair Begg says it most clearly. He says, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land is a misnomer. The only true biblical pilgrimage to the Holy Land is a pilgrimage 
to Jesus. He is the holy land because he is the holy one. The holy land is the presence of the Christ, presence in heaven for us, presence in his spirit in the midst of his people. Those who are called out and redeemed by his great name on this day and all the days that come. This is the thing that's pressed most upon me this week. As these pilgrims made their way to Jerusalem, they they did so to worship the Lord in his temple, right? That's what the whole journey is about. Year after year, decade after decade, generation after generation, they'd make sacrifice and they would praise the Lord in the presence of the glory of God. But did, did they not see that at the same time, what the gospel would give us eyes to see that the glory of God was in their midst, right there on the journey. Their pilgrimage was not to the temple of the Lord, but their pilgrimage was in the presence of the Lord. They would not come and make sacrifices to the Lord, but the Lord would give his own life as a sacrifice. Now, the sacrifices that they came to make were a shadow, but now the real has come, and he would give himself as a ransom for many. The kingdom for which they longed and prayed would be established, not in triumph, but in humility on a cross. And that's the way of our God. And that's the way of his kingdom. Judgment will come to Jerusalem. Judgment will come to all the people, all nations, every people, examining our hearts, looking at our lives, and every one stand condemned. We get a peek ahead in the coming chapters, a judgment that falls upon a people. We, we see an image of judgment in the fig tree just next week. But what we see actually play out in these chapters is that ultimately the judgment does not fall upon a people. The judgment actually falls upon the Lord himself. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Zechariah spoke of judgment falling on the Mount of Olives. Sinners are right to consider judgment, a right to cry out, Hosanna, whatever it means, whoever it is, save, O Lord. And then the gospel gives us understanding it's the Lord Jesus who takes the place of sinners. So when we say save, we pray. We know who we cry out to. When we say, have mercy on us, we're crying out to the Lord who has given his life, the only righteous life in our place. And when judgment falls on Jerusalem, it falls on the back of a man on a cross just outside the city gates. It falls with Roman whips and Roman nails. And the glory of the Lord descending from the Mount of Olives climbs up onto a cross and bears our guilt and shame. And our cries, Hosanna, save. Save, we pray. As we see the gospel play out before our eyes, I realize that this week is really a week of preparation. It's a bit of a turn, a turn again in the gospel of Mark. A call to the people this morning to join. God, as we, as we open these final chapters, show us the depth of the reality of our cry. Save us. 
we pray. As we see the gospel play out from our own pilgrim perspective, our perspective is enriched by the fullness of the gospel to cry out for the grace of the fullness of our God, to know of the humility of the Christ on the cross and the authority and victory of the Christ of the resurrection. Let us come expectantly as we approach these last chapters of Mark. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would, you would whet our appetite, that your word would work among us to, to enliven us, and that your spirit would give us insight, and you would, you would have us cast off our, our laziness, have us open up your word that is a gift to us, that we would receive it, that we would pay attention, just as, as the Father has said, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Lord, when we open up the whole of your word, we have the counsel of our master. Give us attention. And Lord, if there is one here this morning that that does not yet understand your gospel, that that has heard perhaps the, the phrase, save me, O Lord, save me, I pray, but that doesn't understand the nature of your salvation, has not cried out to you in repentance of sin and in faith, in your sacrifice on the cross, and in hope of eternal life through your resurrection. Lord, I pray that you would do that work even in these moments, that your word would work in every heart this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in your great name, in the great name of our master, Jesus Christ. Amen.